Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to the Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Asif Kapadia, a filmmaker born in Hackney in London, whose films have transported viewers from the foothills of the Himalayas and the beaches of Argentina to the racetracks of Dubai and soon into space. He's a filmmaker that knows no bounds. His documentaries are raw and revealing portraits of some of the most iconic people on Earth. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that he forever changed how we think about documentaries. And it seems like every award-giving body agrees he's won an Oscar, five BAFTAs, Sundance, and Grammy Awards, as well as a Grierson for Best Arts Documentary for his landmark film, Amy. This is one of three documentaries in his acclaimed trilogy, Amy, Senna, and Diego Maradona, focusing on the rise and fall of three prodigious talents and the price of their fame. He's also this year's recipient of the prestigious BBC Grierson Trustees Award, and that's why we are thrilled to have him as our first guest on the Doc Exchange. I was particularly struck by his honesty and generosity in answering our questions, and his passion for documentary is incredibly clear. Let's go to that interview. Hi, Asif. Thank you so much for joining us on the very first episode of the Doc Exchange. Hi there. Good to be talking to you. So I'm really excited to get to your documentary picks. But before you reveal what they are, could you just walk me through the first ever encounter you ever had with film? Like, I understand that Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was a pretty big influence on you when you were coming up. So can you talk about your experiences with film growing up? I didn't grow up in a family that watched many movies or went to the cinema that much, but I do remember going to see Greece at the cinema. My family are Indian and I'm from an Indian background. So we're the generation where a person used to come around to the house with a suitcase and open a suitcase and there'd be a VHS machine that they would plug up to your TV and they'd leave you with a few Indian movies to watch over the weekend and then they'd come back on a Monday, take the VHS machine and the tapes away. So my family watched Hollywood films, as they're called, musicals. I wasn't really that into them. Movies, generally, I couldn't sit still. My interest in filmmaking came from working on films. I was about 17 years old and I was a runner on a short film 
and I just loved being on set with the crew. And that led to another, led to another, led to another. I went to film school. I started making my own short films. My interest was always originally in fiction. So I was writing and directing short films and making drama. And at some point, just after I left school, Do the Right Thing came out. And so Spike Lee was a big influence. And then I got more and more interested in cinema and started watching Martin Scorsese films and European cinema and French films and Italian films and Japanese films. And so the idea of world mm-hmm. cinema has always been really something that I've been very much interested in. You started in narrative filmmaking with this incredible adventure drama called The Warrior. How did you start directing documentaries specifically? Was that something you set out to do or did it just happen organically? Yeah, I studied quite a long time at different film schools because that was my only way to make work. And at the time, growing up in England, it was possible to study and I could get a grant to go to college or university. So it wasn't as expensive as it is now. We have to pay for your education now. Sure. So I was of that kind of background. My family wouldn't probably have been able to afford to send me to university and to do my master's. So I made a short film when I was living in Wales at Newport Film School in 1990 called Pizza Man, which is the very first attempt at making a documentary. And I shot it on VHS, cut it on VHS, and it was actually edited linear. You know, this is back in the day where we didn't have non-linear. So you had to start at the beginning. And if you wanted to change anything, you had to start right at the beginning again or overlay what you've edited. So my very, very, very first attempt was about an Italian pizzeria shop in South Wales, but run by a guy from just outside of Naples and another, and his nephew was from Brazil. And weirdly enough, if you look at kind of what I ended up making later on, I ended up making a film about a guy playing football in Naples called Diego Maradona and Senna was a guy from Sao Paulo in Brazil. And these characters were all in the short film that I made, the very, very first documentary. So that was way back in 1990. And then I went off and made feature films and dramas. And really, my first doc came out of the idea of wanting to do something different, wanting to kind of like push myself in a new way. And partly it came out of having made feature films. Features took me away to other parts of the world for a long time, which I really loved. But we had just had a kid. And I just thought, I don't want to be away. I want to be around. And funnily enough, Senna came along. There was the opportunity to make this my first documentary, Senna. And I wanted to treat it like a movie, but actually it ended up being something that I could do where I was more in London and based in London. Taking on that kind of film, do you think that having a background in directing narrative influenced your approach to that film or subsequent ones? Yeah, I think so. I think what I was trying to do was I was treating them all as movies where I very much came from the idea that the director's job is to be telling the story, finding a way to kind of find the arc of the story, writing the story, but not necessarily the story. I didn't want to be in the film. It wasn't interesting or important for me to keep reminding the audience, I made this. And, you know, a lot of people are in their films or they narrate their films or they're holding the microphone or it's their personal story or they're doing a voiceover. And that's all great. People do that really, really well. That wasn't my kind of way of making films. I made fiction films where I was trying to make them as naturalistic as possible. The Sheep Thief, my student film, was made with street kids. And so they were not actors. And a lot of people I've worked with are non-professional actors. So there was always a kind of documentary element in the fiction films. And then when I made Senna, the idea was, I think I've got the best set of dailies that I've seen. How can I cut these dailies in a way to make it feel like I might have been there at the time with a camera and shooting it when actually I never met him? I wasn't even into the sport that much, you know. It was really like there was a dramatic character, an emotional Mm -hmm. story, a spiritual journey, and I thought it was incredibly cinematic. And the idea was using all of the tricks and the techniques of feature films, the score, 
the music, sound effects, sound design, screenwriting, which I'd spend many years writing screenplays. So trying to write a script using archive to give it an emotional arc, ups and downs and plot points and who's the antagonist and who are the other characters and having it feel like a movie. But it, the whole thing was created out of footage that we found. And if the footage didn't exist, we needed to find it. And if we couldn't find it, we had to rewrite the script to fit the footage that we could find. Gotcha. So there's very much a focus on narrative, arc, immersive feeling. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you a question that we will be asking all our guests. What does documentary mean to you? Like when you sit down and watch the documentary, what do you expect? I suppose it comes down to often with documentaries who made it. It's like, I might know the filmmaker or it might be, okay, I know that person's style. So I'm interested in what they do. Because what I don't do is I don't generally try to read the trades. I don't watch trailers. You know, you might hear a buzz about a movie and then that's the kind of film that I want to see. Oh, there's a really good buzz about this film, but don't tell me anything about it. When I watch it, I want to see it fresh, whether that's dot or fiction. So I don't, I don't have a set answer because what I think, in the same way when you say, what do you think about when you think about movies? It's like, well, it depends mm-hmm. on who's made it. It depends on the genre. It depends on when it's spoiled. It depends on what year it's made. And I think the thing about documentaries, they shouldn't all be in one bucket. There should be a really wide range of filmmakers and styles and techniques. And it should be really diverse. And it crosses so many different kind of types of filmmaking. And so you shouldn't be able to sum it up in one simple answer. So I kind of want to pivot to your picks, which we noticed were all related to the 1970s, either set in that time, released (laughs) in that decade, and kind of going off of your point about different styles and different directors having different styles and this particular period having a certain energy. Is that a period you're particularly fond of? The first one is When We Were Kings, which is Mm -hmm. a film about Muhammad Ali. And the reason why I've mentioned in this one Because I'll go back to the fact that my training and film school, I watched a lot of documentaries. I watched a lot of the great films. I watched a lot of the kind of great observational films at film school as part of the film theory courses. But my interest at the time was always in fiction. Okay, I always thought I was going to be a drama director and a fiction director. And then the films that I would generally go to the cinema were those sorts of films. But I remember going to a really big cinema here in London back in the day when we could go to the cinema called The Empire Leicester Square, which is like one of the biggest screens in London. And I saw When We Were Kings, and I've always been a big Muhammad Ali fan. He's always been one of my heroes. My dad was a big fan of his, and what he stood for as a man was just as important as what he did in the ring. And I'm of a certain age, I only saw Muhammad Ali fight when he was old and at the end of his career, so he didn't look great. So I never really saw the guy in the ring live. But then I saw this film and it was just something to do with the music and the footage and the fact that it was just him in his prime being amazing and awesome and eloquent and beautiful. That made me just so, it made me cry, it moved me. And I just thought, I don't ever want to see an actor playing Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is the best Muhammad Ali, right? No one can do him. No one can dance like him. No one can do a poem like him no one can do a press conference like him so I remember being at the time thinking that affected me in a way and at the time he was still around and he was alive when I saw the film but you knew he was sick you knew he was unwell and that was part of the reason why it was so moving I guess the reason I'm mentioning that film is that played a big influence on me when I ended up making Senna when I ended up doing Amy when I ended up doing Maradona the idea of doing films where you say I know there's a way of doing a drama about these characters and other people are going to try or have tried or have done it. Or Many docs will have been made about these people. What I wanted to try to do was kind of pin them down and do the definitive film. 
and whatever they are, their flaws or whatever makes them good, they are the best version of them. Just let them tell the story. And I think a lot of that came off the feeling that I got when I first saw When We Were Kings at the cinema. That makes a lot of sense. And so even though When We Were Kings is a film about a sporting event, like Amy, like Senna, like Diego Maradona, it looks at a much wider political and cultural context. Was looking at that bigger picture or context something you were thinking about with each film? Yeah, exactly. Muhammad Ali had a long career, but that focused on one particular fight, one particular time. And it also focused on the landscape around them, what was going on, you know, the people, the country. Most people didn't know or hadn't really even heard of many people, you know. The other Mm -hmm. thing that's interesting is just the time it took for that film to come out. You see, that footage existed, but no one had been able to put it together or cut it or release it. So the film came out a long time after the material was shot. And I think there's something in that, the idea that there is this amazing material but nobody knew what to do with it. And that's something that I've made a habit of. It's like this goldmine of archive of somebody at their prime and a film finally being edited and being released and they're working out what to do with it when that person, in this case, was still alive, but actually was in a very different phase of their life. So all of these things came about. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's very little boxing actually in it, right? The fight is a very tiny part of it. They really almost rush through it. It's more about what he meant to the journalists and to the people that were there and the musicians and the incredible concert that happened. All of that atmosphere is what makes it feel so rich and special. And I think that's really a big part of it. It's the context. It's not just the character. It's the context. It's the location. It's the landscape. And it's the feeling and the texture of a place that I find really interesting. Again, whenever I do a film, whether it's fiction or documentary, all of those elements are always a big part of the films that I try to make. And so thinking specifically about sports documentary, what do you think makes one successful or a good sport documentary? Is that ability to zoom out or is it something else? I think there are certain sports that kind of naturally work cinematically. Boxing is a classic. It just works. Two people in an enclosed space punching each other in the head. And it's just shot really well. It's really hard to do team sports. Another film that I saw probably a couple of years earlier, I was in Chicago with a short film at the Chicago Film Festival when I saw Hoop Dreams at one of kind of the earlier screenings and Steve James was there. And I remember seeing that in Chicago with an audience with me all these years later. And actually one of the people I've been lucky enough to meet having made documentaries now is Steve James. And, you know, to be able to tell him and for him to say he liked some of my work was like a really special feeling because he is an absolute hero. And the idea of how much time he spent putting that film together and making it and shooting it, not knowing where it was going to go, but the ups and downs of real people's lives and the drama that can come out of that is something that he captured. So I thought that was another really classic example that I'm sure a lot of people would mention as one of their favourite films. That was a very influential film. I think American sports generally, because they stop start a lot, always kind of work cinematically. And football, soccer has always had a problem because there's a lot of people on a very big pitch and there's so many different narratives going on. It's harder to kind of make that cinematic and very few fiction films have succeeded. There's a lot of really bad ones. And even dogs, there's not many that kind of stand out for me over the years. And so it depends on the sport. Certain sports with a fewer number of people and more cameras around are easier to recreate. So thinking about what you've just said around capturing the real life ups and downs, the more intimate moments of these larger than life characters, I'd like to actually hear about your second documentary pick, which I want to say is not that well known. Can you tell us what it is and how you came across it? So as as I've said, I'm a person who always grew up watching fiction films. And one of my heroes is Martin Scorsese. 
And one of the interesting things about a couple of directors, well, I mentioned Spike Lee already, Werner Herzog is another one, but Scorsese, key person for me, was the first kind of proper film director that I was aware of that was always making documentaries in between his movies. He's really incredibly prolific and he always has done, he does studio films and then he'll do a more personal film and then in the middle he'll do a doc. And there's this film which, like you say, is not very well known. It's Martin Scorsese, like considered the world's greatest living film director, Italian-American. So I saw this film and I just remember thinking, it's only a short film, it's half an hour or something. And it's basically his mum and his dad. He's hanging out with his mum and dad. And I wish I'd had the nerve to make a film where I was just hanging out with my mum and dad, asking them questions. But I love the kind of simplicity of it. It's actually a film that during lockdown, I did a bit of teaching and it's a film that I told all the students to go and watch. Because, you know, they were all really suffering because here they are, they're going to film school. This is a really big deal for them. And they can't go to the film school. They're all at home. They're doing all the teaching by Zoom. And I was like, watch that film. And you don't know how many stories there are in your own home. You don't know how many characters there are that you've never even thought about. You don't have to go to the opposite side of the world to find a great story. There are stories with your grandparents, with your family. And I speak about other people. I wish I'd done more of this. I didn't. Okay, The Italian-American always stood out to me just because it was Martin Scorsese just chatting to his mum and his dad who turn up in his films over the years all the time and who are very, very interesting characters. But they're just funny and they tell their stories about the old country and they talk about coming to New York and their relationship. And it's just a very simple, sweet movie which has stayed with me. And then all the way through, his mum's cooking. And I just remember loving the fact that at the ending it had like the recipe for her sauce. And it was just this idea that you can make features, drama films, and you can make documentaries. And last year, Scorsese had two films out. One of them was another film that he made about Bob Dylan, which was a great film. And I just thought, for me, that must have somewhere resonated. The fact that if he can do it, why can't I? Why do you have to, as a director, choose that you only do documentaries? Why can't you do fiction and do docs? Why can't you just say, I'm in this story, should be told this way. And this story should be told mm. that way, right? Another person is Werner Herzog. And I was going to maybe mention a Herzog film because he's another guy who, you know, started off in narrative, but then became more well-known in recent years for doing his documentaries. But he's just on another level as a person who pushes himself and experiments. And a lot of the films that I made as fiction films were in certain ways inspired by the kind of Herzogian kind of madness of taking a crew to the ends of the world, literally, to make a story and somewhere along the way he's probably figured out it's easier for him to do it if he has a smaller unit a smaller crew but he's a very dramatic person he's often in his films he's brilliant his voiceovers are incredible and you know that's another person i can mention just as someone who's always swung between the two and spike having been taught by mike scorsese at film school at nyu has always done the same as well. He's always had documentaries about subjects that are important to him while he's making his movies. And sometimes non-fiction elements come into it, like at the ending of Black Klansman. And so that's something that I just thought was worth mentioning on this podcast, this idea that you don't have to be one thing. Don't let anyone pigeonhole you to say you only do docs. You can do drama and you can do drama and do docs or do both at the same time. And that's what I always wanted to do. I'm just a film director. I make movies and I spend as much time and energy making a fiction film as I would a doc. Sometimes the docs have become more well-known. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. But everything that I've learned from fiction has been applied in the documentary. I think it's interesting that you said you wished you made a more personal story, like an Italian-American. I'm wondering what has stopped you from making a film that feels a bit closer to home. I say that partly because my mum died a few years ago and I wish I'd sat down when I was mm. younger and just made a film my mum mm. and my dad, you know, and recorded her and put her down on tape or on film, but I didn't. And it was one of those things growing up where, again, this could be a psychological thing. When you're growing up, you're like trying to escape. You're trying to run away. You know, I felt like I ran away with a circus and runaway films. And I did that on my own, away from home. I didn't do that at home because I was trying to get away to kind of figure out who I was. But at some point, I wish I had just spent more time talking to my parents and learning their stories. And I say that now as someone who still do that, my dad and my siblings. But it's tricky. We all have complex relationships at home. So I've always been interested in kind of pushing and going to the opposite side of the world and somewhere subtly hidden underneath will be the things that I'm interested in and the themes that I'm interested in, the stories or what I feel, but it's not explicit. And I haven't really done that kind of explicit film, which is like, this is about my mum and my dad. And I just love the fact that Scorsese did that again and again. He's this tough guy, you know, doing stories about gangsters, but so much of it is always very personal. Scorsese draws on extensive family archives. And I'm interested to know how you set out and organize, present archival footage in a way that gives the story or the subject you're working on meaning, like whether it's someone like Diego Maradona, where do you begin with crafting a story from so much material? You start off with an instinct. I mean, most of the characters that I made films about, Senna, I had watched him racing and I knew the ending. I didn't know what the beginning would be, but mm -hmm. I knew what the ending was before we started. Amy, I'm a North Londoner. I remember her being around. I remember having a lot of questions while she was alive. 
mainly the question was, why is no one looking after her? I don't understand why she's on stage in that state. I don't understand why no one's protecting her. That question was the reason I wanted to make the film. It was like, I want to answer that question. Why is no one looking after this girl when she's obviously in trouble? Maradona was a different one. I am a big football fan and he's the guy of my generation. He was the greatest player. And I read a book about him when I was still at university, which was about his life. And I remember that book stayed with me because it was just like, wow, what a journey he has been on. I remember thinking at the time when I was still at university, wouldn't it be great one day to make a film about Diego Maradona? And then, you know, just circumstances kind of come around and you realize I've got an opportunity now. Maradona was a big fan of Senna and Amy had just won an Oscar. And he was like, this guy's going to make a film about me. So not many people get that opportunity. So I kind of jumped on it. Each one of them had a different journey. With Senna, because we knew what the story was, I had a writer on that film who was a big Etten Senna fan and who had the knowledge in his head. Okay, what I don't do, I have to be honest, is I don't generally go and read a book and watch everything. I'm instinctive. So I'm like, okay, what are the key stories? And again, I'm going to bring it back to Mike Scorsese. Scorsese's films have generally been a big influence for me. So Raging Bull, I remember thinking, all right, that's a film about a boxer. But in it, if you watch it, there's only really seven fights featured. That's kind of the number that felt right. And each fight has a narrative purpose. Each fight is visually different. And that kind of idea is what I used with Senna, having all of these races that he did, all of these key pivotal moments in his career that every fan would have a different favorite. You can only sort of show seven or eight races. And so that's really what we feature. And each one is there for a specific reason. Each one serves a narrative purpose. And each one is visually different. And now within that, you have a rivalry and you're simplifying it. So we had a very simple arc. And the idea was, I want to see everything. I want as much material as possible. And then we spent a lot of time in the edit. And a producer had set up a way where we'd have a lot of time in post-production to keep cutting, keep cutting, keep cutting until we find the story. And that's the one thing about archive films is that they take a long time. And you look everywhere. You rip stuff off YouTube. You find material wherever you can and you cut with it until you know it's going to be in the film, and then you've got to figure out who owns that, what's the master, what's the best version of that. If you can't find it, what do you replace it with? So you have to have a concept of what the story is and the different acts of the story and the arc of the story and the characters in your head. With Senna, there was probably a simple document. There was a piece of paper. With Amy, there was never a script, never an outline. It was purely, we had her songs. The spine of the film was going to be the songs. And then it was a question of finding out who are the people who were there? Who's in the footage? Who's there next to her? Let's go and talk to them. So Amy came out of audio interviews, only audio interviews. And then once people trusted me and knew that I was coming from the right place and the idea was not to exploit her again, but to actually show the real Amy, then people trusted me enough to say, oh, I've got some footage. Because initially everyone said, no, I got nothing. And we had no idea if we'd ever have a film. But once they trusted me, they said, actually, I've got a bit of video. Oh, I've got these photographs. Oh, I've got this message. And the film was then constructed out of trust. The first thing you're going to have is they've got to trust you to open up to you and speak to you. And I made a point of not putting a camera on anyone because they did not trust the media. They did not trust journalists. They did not trust people because those were the people who made fun of her when she was alive. And so that was the worst thing was for me to come along saying I'm making a film. They're like, you're just going to be another person who's going to humiliate her. And I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. I'm going to try and show the real person, but I can't do it because I wasn't there. I never met her. You're going to have to tell me and you're going to have to trust me. And that trust sometimes took years to build up. But out of that came the material and all of the early Amy stuff, which no one had ever seen before. It came out of building up friendships with the people who were friends with her. 
And I think that's the thing that I'm interested in is I'm not interested when I'm making films with just having lots of famous people turning up in talking heads or just giving an opinion. It's like, if you weren't there, you don't know. You've got to be in the room with him. You've got to be the person that was standing next to Diego Maradona. And that's where someone like Fernando Signorini, his trainer, came along. So we had to find him and he was working in Mexico at the time. Maradona and his ex-wife really don't get along. They're suing each other in court right now. But I still said, there's no way we can make this film without you because you were there. You knew everything. So you're going to have to be in this film. I can't do a film about him without you. And I think that process of getting people to be on board, to go and fly to Argentina and Buenos Aires, to meet with them in person, just so that they can understand where you're coming from, so they can then trust you and open up and speak to you. And generally, once people speak to you, they will have some archive. So the archive then comes in and we then play around with it and they have to trust us that we're not going to put this on the internet. We're not going to give it away. We're not going to tell this person what you've said and that person will never know. You know, you've got to be really good at protecting your sources and all of that kind of adds up to people then being willing to share very, very personal footage. Family members or loved ones have died. They really don't want that material being given away to someone they don't trust. It all comes out of a one-to-one personal relationship first. And so for you, building, say, a trove of archive goes hand-in-hand and is, in some ways, intrinsically connected to building that trust with the folks who are on screen with these figures or these people. Yeah, what I do is that we have a character, we have a rough idea of the story. I normally have a big whiteboard. I write down what I think the structure is and what the story is. And then we start talking to people and we interview them. On Senna, I put interviews on camera. It's the only time because they'd all been filmed so many times, the kind of key characters. The only person I couldn't film was Senna, which I realised, well, this is weird to be interviewing everyone but not having him. I want to hear his point of view. So let's find all of the archive where he talks because he should narrate his own life story, not someone else's opinion. So that was a key kind of moment. With Amy, I did audio interviews. But while I'm doing audio interviews, we're getting all of the archive in. So we're editing, looking for archive and doing interviews all at the same time. What I don't do is get the archive and then write a script and then edit it. It's all happening at the same time constantly. And so the edit will inform the interview. The interview will inform the archive. The archive will change the edit. And then you go around in circles again and again. So that all of them are happening at the same time. So there's a brilliant team of archive researchers who are searching for material, who are going out and looking for it and logging it all. And generally, when you get the archive, you see it doesn't have a day on a date on it. So you're guessing. And I find that's a really important part of the process where I spend a lot of time doing a very, very rough assembly, a chronological assembly of the story. And what you're doing is you're basically studying your character. And I'm just looking at their face and their eyes and trying to work out what year is this. You're looking at it going, I think he's probably about 22 there. Or, you know what, she's Mm. probably about 26. And often you might be wrong, but that moment of spending time with the characters really informs the journey that you're going to go on with them. When you're lucky, you kind of fall in love with your characters. I wasn't a big Senna fan or a big Amy fan before I made the films, but during the films, I really felt I really like these people. I want to tell their story and I want the audience to feel what I feel for them, right? And that was a big part of it is you may not like these people or you may think they're an idiot, but you wait till you see them because you don't really know the real person. And that becomes a big, interesting part of the journey. I'll give you another kind of interesting thing, which is that particularly with Senna and Amy, on a fiction film, you wouldn't go out to make a fiction film giving away the ending. But with both of those films, everyone knew the ending. So the story is about the journey that they're going to go on. 
And that's where all the surprises are. The new things that you learn about a character are on the journey, not necessarily the ending. Your feeling may be different about them at the ending, but it's really about the beginning and the middle that you're working on. And that's what we spend a lot of time trying to set up a character, trying to do it in a visual way, in a cinematic way, and for the audience to create their own opinion. It's not me telling you what I think. It's what you get from them as they come across. So speaking of journeys in filmmaking, let's go to your final pick. What have you chosen and why did this one make the cut? It's just another mad doc that I saw at the cinema. And I think that's one of the key things. The films that I'm remembering often were the ones I went to the cinema and I watched them with my mates and I was blown away. The Hearts of Darkness documentary, the kind of making of Apocalypse Now. It's another one where the film was made so many years ago. The film is brilliant, but it's possibly, and the film is really brilliant, but the making of the film may be even better. And the idea of that story being captured and the epic nature of this material and what's going on behind the scenes and everyone's going crazy and someone's there filming it all and capturing it on being ignored. I only mention it again as because it's often the way that the films that I've made have all been made in that way. Diego Maradona, there were two camera people who were there filming him during his time in Naples. But something about the fact that they were always there, that everyone ignored them. Because all of these stories predate social media. They predate the idea of iPhones and telephones and things like that. So you are in the opposite end of the world. No one really knows what's going on. Someone's there capturing it. And then they forget that they've got these tapes or they get put away on a shelf until 20 years later when someone says, why don't we have a look at it? And it suddenly has significance and a meaning. I think his wife shot it all, didn't she? And it's basically the story of what's really going on. And so it's almost about a relationship as well, about what's going on on screen and what's going on off screen and someone capturing it. And you've just got kind of insanity going on. And you realize that somehow he captured it in a film, but I think maybe she even captured the making of the insanity is even more dramatic than But this just sort of stood out as you never know what might be sitting on the shelf. You know, that footage that people have ignored, those tapes that no one can figure out how to play them. And I do think there's something about film, the fact that it lasts forever, and tape, physical tape, is very different to digital. And people having mobile phones and throwing away phones or deleting phones or having footage that they think, I don't like the way I look, so therefore I'll delete that image. I think that's the kind of society that we've gone into. It's all self-conscious, the way people are filming themselves now. I know there's a lot of amazing dramatic things that have happened around the world which would not have changed or been captured were it not for the mobile phone. Well, these films that I'm mentioning are kind of old-fashioned ones shot on film, which I think, I suppose, maybe that's quietly what I'm celebrating. I think I'm personally interested in the way the documentary can function as a sort of cultural post-mortem. So if something like a cultural post-mortem allows us to reassess a specific moment, a piece of culture, or a person, did this film give you a new understanding or enjoyment of Apocalypse Now? I just think films are so hard to make, and... (laughs) That film is crazy and you can see it on screen. It works. It's a mythical story. And it is, you know, I'm again bringing up Herzog, but, you know, there are certain filmmakers and certain films which you read about and just think the insanity that everyone went crazy. It also just feels like, I don't know if films are going to be made like that again. I don't know if anyone would ever do that again. The world has changed. And for somebody to have been there all the time filming that madness felt really special. This feels like, another time it feels like films that the 70s era you brought it up i think was a golden age of kind of american cinema in certain ways and i think those filmmakers 
And Muhammad Ali, Scorsese, and Coppola are probably three of the kind of iconic characters of that era. And somehow it's capturing them at a moment in time. And I think that's what it is. It's not mm. about them. It's not about their life story, but it's about them at their prime. And I suppose maybe that's what these three films, without thinking about it, that's what they all have in common. It's like three iconic characters who maybe meant something to me at their prime. In Coppola's case, not necessarily always in control, but maybe he was because he ended up creating something amazing. This is more of something thematically I was thinking about. So with Senna, Diego, Maradona, and Amy, and in some cases, I would say in When We Were Kings and with Hearts of Darkness, there is this sense that like you're seeing people who are trying to do something that makes them feel whole and uncomplicated, whether that's making a film or singing or performing or driving a race car. But it seems like all, there's all these different other circumstances, whether it's family, the politics, sort of churn of capitalism and promotion and things like that, that prevent them from doing that thing that makes them feel very whole and uncomplicated. I was wondering if that was also something that drew you to those subjects. The idea of like, I'm a person at my prime trying to do something that makes me feel like I'm at my prime, the most uncomplicated whole version of myself. And there's all these other mitigating factors. Is that something you're also interested in filmmaking in general? I think that's a really, really good question. And I do think there is a theme there, which is all of these characters, at one point, there's like a simplicity and a purity in their life. This is the thing that they love. This is what they want to do. They love driving a car fast. They love to sing. They love to kick a ball around or whether or not it's filmmaking, whether it's boxing, whether it's whatever, it's just whatever that thing is where you express yourself, where you forget all of your troubles and you're free, you know, there's a purity. And I guess what all of these are about that purity gets complicated by the bigger picture, the world, society, money, relationships, complications, some of which you bring on yourself because no one's perfect, but it's all about that moment of like, God, it used to be so easy. What happened? Why am I now in this situation? Why am I in this mess? I remember feeling that, you know, the beginning and the ending of Senna is probably the, one of the more explicit versions of that where he talks about go-karting. And he says it wasn't about money. It wasn't about politics. It was just pure racing, pure driving. And with Amy, you know, she just loved singing. She just wanted to be a jazz artist. She loved hip hop. She just wanted to do her thing. And she wanted to do her thing live. And the worst thing for her was to become a pop star because then you're just going to sing the same song again and do a little dance and it's not real. It becomes fake. And again, with Maradona, you know, he just wants to play football. When he's on the pitch, all his problems go away because off the pitch, he's got a lot of problems. And that kind of simplicity and that purity, I would say, you know, when I was making short films, I just remember making short films with my friends was like one of the most fun experiences of my life. The minute you start making feature films, it becomes more complicated, more political. There's more money at play. There's more people. There's more ego. There's more, you know, people you've got to keep happy. People want their money back. They want success or whatever. And, and it gets complicated. And sometimes you think, why are you doing this? Because you used to love doing what you do, but now it's become work. And I think that's, I suppose, what's somewhere within it. You know, you push yourself and you want to challenge yourself. But also you sometimes think, God, when did it all become so complicated? And I think maybe there's a theme that runs through all of these artists. And I would call them all artists in a way. You know, they're all, whether they're soccer players or whether they're racing drivers, they are the peak of what they do. Asif, thank you so much for joining us on the Doc Exchange. It's really, really been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. 
Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.